thank you to, to Dion and Taylor and the family for, for sharing that, that gift that God has given to you uh, with us on this occasion. What a wonderful way to reflect on our Heavenly Father this morning. Could I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Uh, Revelation chapter 14 is the portion of God's Word that we've come to uh, this morning. We have had it read to us, uh, the whole chapter, but we're going to be focusing this morning just on verses 1 uh, to 5 uh, on the theme of the triumph and, uh, of the Lamb and His church. And so we're not going to read that again, uh, but please keep it open because we're going to be working our way in some detail through those first five verses. Now as we come to chapter 14, uh, if you still remember your diagram or if you've got it in your Bible, uh, you will see that chapter 14 brings us the, to, to the end of the fourth cycle uh, of visions in the book of Revelation. And uh, hopefully as we've been working our way through this incredible book of the Bible, you are growing in your understanding uh, and your appreciation of the amazing symbolism uh, that is contained within this book, but, but more importantly, that you are growing in your appreciation and understanding of the wonderful truths uh, and spiritual realities to which these symbols are pointing. One of the benefits of taking an expository journey through the book of Revelation, as we've been doing, is as we move through it uh, chapter by chapter, the pieces of the puzzle, the layers of the paint uh, are starting to come together, and the big picture, I hope, is becoming clearer and clearer. And part of that is because many of the symbols and the realities to which they point uh, are repeated as we work our way through the book. And so they build on each other as we move through. And then when we do encounter new symbols, uh, we are able to put them correctly into the context and the landscape of the canvas uh, into which they then fit. And so chapter 14, uh, both this week and next week, we're going to spend two weeks in chapter 14, introduce us to a number of new symbols which we are going to need to understand but these new symbols are presented in the context of a number of already well-known or well-understood symbols that we've come across already. And so I hope that today we'll continue to fill your heart with a, a greater understanding and appreciation, ultimately not for the symbols, but for our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and His purposes in this world as we head towards His soon return. So this fourth vision started in chapter 12 and it runs through to chapter 14 and so far it has been focused on the persecuting dragon and his two beasts. Uh, John has been lifting the veil for us on the spiritual realities which are raging behind the scenes, the warfare that is raging between Jesus and Satan and between particularly Satan as he then pursues the woman and her offspring. Uh, who we've seen is the church and us as individual Christians. Last week we saw Satan's attack against the church. It's carried out on this earth practically through the agency of two beasts, the beast of the state and the beast of false religion. One, the state through hostile opposition and persecution as powers and authorities are corrupted by Satan. And the other then through a very different means of, of subtle deception and worship of false idols and false religion. 
But both of these beasts, although they're very different, they share a common goal. They share a common purpose, which is to draw all men to worship the dragon who is Satan. We also saw the the scary reality last week that the power of this dragon and his beasts is universal. It affects every tribe and people and language and nation. We were told it affects everyone on earth, worships the beast. Everyone on earth is marked by this beast, except one group of individuals, and only one group of individuals, those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundations of the earth. And so amidst the the darkness of chapter 13 last week, we saw there was this ray of encouragement for us as believers If you're a Christian today, your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the earth. In other words, your salvation is secure. And even if the persecution of the dragon leads to captivity and death, God's purposes for his people will never be frustrated. And so praise God then for chapter 14, because today we come to see something of the hope and the glory which awaits those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And not just what awaits us in heaven one day, but what that is meant to mean for all of us who live life here on earth between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus, as we live each day in the light of eternity. And so in the first place today, we see in John's vision, the lamb standing on Mount Zion in verse one. As we've worked our way through Revelation so far, you would have noticed, I hope, that each of the cycles of the vision starts with the first coming of Jesus and then describes to us the activity of God and the activity of Satan throughout the church age. And then each vision covers the whole period of history in which we are living but each one from different perspectives. And each of the visions ends with the second coming of Jesus and the final judgment of the wicked. But so far, the descriptions of this final judgment of the wicked and the eternal glory of the saints in heaven has been fairly general, a little bit vague in terms of details. But what we're going to start seeing from chapter 14 onwards is that the focus of the visions starts to intensify, as it were, as it shifts towards the second coming of Jesus. And what we will see is that the descriptions moving forward, both of heaven and hell, both of eternal glory and the final judgment of the wicked, they become far more clear and more detailed. And all along in our series, I've mentioned that the main theme of the whole book of Revelation is the lamb wins. And today we see very clearly just what that looks like. What does it mean for the lamb to win as we are given this window into heaven and see what awaits us at the end of history? So verse one tells us, then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb. And with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And so in verse one already, we have some old symbols uh, and we have some new symbols. The old ones that should be familiar to us is firstly the lamb. We know the lamb, we've seen who he is. It's a clear reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Then we have the 144,000. We know about that. We, we dealt with that in chapter 7. The 144,000 represents the whole number of the redeemed people of God from both the Old and the New Testament. And then we have a reference to the name of Jesus and the name of God written on our foreheads. And we saw this also in chapter 7 was a reference to the sealing of the Holy Spirit, a sealing of all those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. But there is a new symbol in this chapter, and it only occurs this one time in Revelation, and that is to Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? Well, Mount Zion is, is well understood from the Old Testament. If you know anything about the Old Testament history, it is a physical location in Israel. It's the place where David initially conquered the Jebusites and set up what became known as the city of David. And eventually, Mount Zion becomes associated with the location of the temple in Jerusalem. But throughout the Old Testament, this idea of Mount Zion became kind of interchangeable with the concept of the city of Jerusalem. And so often Mount Zion is used as a synonym for Jerusalem. And so what happens in the Old Testament then is theologically, Mount Zion and Jerusalem become understood to be the place of God's dwelling with his people obviously centered not so much on the mount, but what was on the mount, which was the temple of God. Now, as we move into the New Testament, we see that the New Testament writers, they pick up on this theological meaning of Zion and Jerusalem, and the focus shifts away from the location, from the physical location in Israel to the spiritual realities to which they point. The temple, Zion, Jerusalem, they all point to God's dwelling with his people. The New Testament makes, us, makes it clear that the place where God dwells with his people is not some hill in the old city of Jerusalem uh, in Palestine, but it is the church. So although John's vision is saturated in, in Old Testament prophecy and illusions, it also comes to us at the end of the New Testament. And it's clear that John's use of Zion here is in line with the rest of the New Testament teaching on Zion, which is a reference to the spiritual people of God. Let me give you two examples. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 to 24. The writer to the Hebrews is writing to the church, and he says, but you have come to Mount Zion. To the physical hill in Israel, no. He says, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Clear reference to the spiritual understanding that Mount Zion is the place where God dwells with his people. Again, it's Peter, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 to 10, where, where Peter makes this understanding of Zion very clear. Again, Peter's writing to the church, and he says, As you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he backs this up from Scripture. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him, speaking of Jesus, will not be put to shame. So the scripture is clear that, that the Old Testament theological understanding of Zion as the physical place where God met with his people has now been replaced in the New Testament with the church as the dwelling place for God by his spirit. Now, although this is the only reference to Zion in the book of Revelation, there are also three other references to Jerusalem in Revelation, and Jerusalem being synonymous, as it were, in the Old Testament with Zion. And what we find is that all three references to Jerusalem in Revelation speak not of the old city of Jerusalem, but speak about the new heavenly Jerusalem, the final dwelling place of God with his people. And so John sees this vision here into heaven. He sees Jesus standing on Mount Zion, and surprise, surprise, he's not alone. Of course not. Because if Zion is a symbol of God's presence with his people, we see in the vision that Jesus standing on Mount Zion is surrounded by the complete number of the redeemed. The church universal, symbolically referred to as 144,000, those who have the name of Jesus and the name of God written on their foreheads. So what is this picture of the lamb standing on Mount Zion, surrounded by the people of God? What is that meant to teach us? That's the symbol. What is the spiritual truth? Well, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 tells us exactly what it is that we are looking at and what we are meant to understand by this vision. Psalm 2 is one of the most well-known messianic psalms. In other words, a psalm that is a prophecy about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And although we're only looking at the first part of Revelation 14 today, you'll see Psalm 2 really speaks to the whole chapter. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, there's the first beast, set themselves and the rulers, they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that is the lamb, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. We're gonna see that next week, saying, Verse six, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them, that is the kings, with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Come back next week and you'll see that. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
What we have in Psalm 2 here under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit is a wonderful commentary on the whole chapter of Revelation 14 where God the Father sets His Son, Jesus, as His King on Mount Zion, ruling over the nations with a rod of iron. But He also is surrounded by those who are His heritage. All the, 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 the nations of the earth are given to Him as His possession. All those who take refuge in Him. What an amazing picture. What an encouragement we have here of our heavenly dwelling, of Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, now standing, reigning and ruling as King of kings and Lord of lords over the whole world, and we are right there with him in verse 1. We are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, and we will reign with him. Revelation 5 verse 10 has already told us that, and we'll get to it in chapter 20 again, that we will reign with him. In my preparation, I came across a, a helpful reference to ancient warfare tactics of the day. And the guy was explaining lots of strategies that military generals used to take to, to win a battle. But the basic summary of the matter is this. He who has the high ground wins. And so as we contrast chapter 12, where Satan is thrown down to the earth and pursues the woman and her offspring, here in chapter 14, we see Jesus standing on Mount Zion. The lamb occupies the high ground. And so our victory in Christ is secure. Now the focus shifts in John's vision from the lamb standing on Mount Zion to a very detailed description of the 144,000 who are with him. And so in the second place, I want us to see the identity of the 144,000. And I did, I spent quite a bit of time on this back in chapter seven, explaining that the reference to the 144,000 is a symbolic description of the whole church of Jesus Christ. And so if you missed that sermon uh, or confused at this point, I'd encourage you to go and listen to it. It is available online, uh, or I can gladly uh, send you the notes. Just pop me an email. But even if we just take these verses in chapter 14 on their own, there is plenty of evidence for us to understand this group of 145,000 as referring to the church. Firstly, we are told in verse 1 that they have the name of Jesus and the name of God the Father written on their foreheads, which clearly Jesus applied in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, to all those who are Christians. Back in the seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus said in Revelation 3, 12, to the one who conquers, I will make him a, a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. In other words, I'll, I'll bring him right into the presence of God. He'll never leave the presence of God. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So this is clearly a reference to Christians. We're also told in verse three that the 144,000 are those who have been redeemed from the earth. Again, a, a clear reference to the church of Jesus Christ. Many times in the New Testament, we as the church are referred to as those who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Galatians 3, Galatians 4, Titus 2, Hebrews 9, and others. Then verse 4 tells us that this group of 144,000 are those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Well, that's surely in John's mind, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 27, where Jesus said to the Jews, you do not believe in me because you are not my sheep. My sheep, Jesus said, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So this 144,000 are Christians who follow Jesus wherever he goes. And then we see in verse 5 that the 144,000 uh, are referred to as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And again, we need to let Scripture guide us here. And the New Testament is clear that whenever the word first fruits is used in the New Testament, it either refers to Jesus as our forerunner in the resurrection, that's 1 Corinthians 15, or in at least three other places, it speaks about us as Christians collectively being the first fruits to God. Think back in the Old Testament. Uh, what happened is if you had a harvest, you would go and collect the first fruits and set them apart for God. The rest of the harvest was yours. You could eat it, you could distribute it, you could sell it. But the first fruits belonged to God. They were set apart for God. And the New Testament picks up on that and says that we as the redeemed people of God, we are the first fruits that have been offered up to God from out of all of God's creation. James chapter 1 verse 18, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13 confirms that. But in Romans chapter 8, there's a wonderful insight into kind of what this first fruits out of all of creation means. We read in Romans 8 that the whole creation, the whole created order waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation, we are told, was subjected to futility, to corruption, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, the church is the first fruits of Christ's salvation, but when Jesus returns, the rest of creation then will be set free from its bondage and corruption and will be gloriously restored in the new heavens and the new earth. I can't wait till we get to Revelation 19 to 21 to explore that more. So now with the understanding that this group of the 144,000 standing with Jesus is a picture of the church, a description of believers throughout the church age. So that includes you and me then here today if we are Christians. What else does this vision reveal then about us? And so in the third place, I want us to see the activity of the 144,000 in verses two and three. Now these verses give us an amazing description of the music in heaven. And the music is being made by people, the people of God, who sing. Just listen to this description. Try and tune the radio of your soul into the spiritual wavelength of this symbolic description here. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. 
And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Let me remind you that that number, 144,000, it's a symbolic number. It's a symbolic number for all of God's people. And you'll recall back in chapter seven when we looked at this for the first time, John went on in Revelation chapter seven, verse nine, to describe this 144,000 as what? As a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, standing before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now in chapter 14, John tells us what that sounded like what it sounded like when the multitude of believers from every nation and tribe and people and language opened their mouths to sing. What did it sound like? It sounded like the roar of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. If you've ever been to the Victoria Falls or perhaps the Hrabis Falls or once I had the opportunity to visit the Niagara Falls and you do so in the rainy season, you will understand what John is referring to here. The indigenous tribes of Zambia have for hundreds of years referred to the Victoria Falls as the smoke that thunders. In other words, heaven is loud. Heaven is loud. There is immense power in the voices of this multitude. But as loud and as powerful as the sound was, John says it sounded like the beautiful sound of harpists playing on their harps. Young people, you won't find this music on Spotify or iTunes because this is the music of heaven. This is the song of the redeemed. No one else can learn this song. It's a song sung from a heart of personal experience. It's sung from a heart that has been overwhelmed by the grace of God. Not even the angels can sing this song. Isn't that amazing? Yes, the angels can sing. I'm sure they sing beautifully and they can worship God for sure. And I, I'm I know we will enjoy listening to the angels as they sing their songs to God in heaven one day, but this song which John heard is the song of the redeemed. It's the sound of millions of voices with the thundering power of roaring waters and the sweet melody of a thousand harps singing salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The closest you and I can get to this sound, to this singing, is when we gather in church on Sundays. As the redeemed of the Lord here on earth gather and we pour out our hearts in worship to God and to the Lamb. We've just come out of lockdown. Some of you are still in lockdown. You will not experience this song in your lounge on a Sunday. You will not experience this song watching YouTube, no matter how big your TV screen is. You will not even experience this attending the biggest rock concert on the planet. 
This is the exclusive experience of the gathered church. Yes, found in small numbers as we meet around the globe every Sunday on the Lord's Day. And every time we gather to sing, it is a foretaste. It is a rehearsal for the praise and the worship of that great throng around the throne. So can I make two points of application before we move on to our final point? We're not live streaming the service, we streamed the, the earlier one, but for those of you who are in the habit of watching Sunday services online, I'm glad you're here today. Sorry for you, um, because here it comes. If you've slowly drifted away from the gathering of the local church during lockdown, although we've been back gathered for, for the best part of a year, many of you still choose to stay at home by choice. So can I remind you with the deepest of love of a pastor that there is not an online version of heaven one day. The gathered church is meant to be a weekly foretaste of what heaven is like. It's meant to be a weekly rehearsal for the worship of God in heaven one day. It's meant to be a, a weekly expression of the community of God's people as we gather to witness new believers being baptized, as we gather around the Lord's Supper on a regular basis to remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as his body. And it's meant to be a way in which we live out the grace and the love of Christ as we anticipate his return. So if you are part of this 144,000 in heaven one day, and I pray that is true of all of you this morning, you express that through your membership of the local church here on earth. I need to say as well, it doesn't have to be Honey Ridge. There are plenty of faithful Bible-believing churches in Johannesburg, but you need to belong to the church the local church, you need to join a small group where you can participate in God's earthly picture of this heavenly reality. So that's the first point of application. The second is really an appeal to those of you who are gathered here today, some of whom are here bodily, but you don't sing. It's amazing how thirsty people get when we start singing either thirsty or needing the toilet, or you need the toilet because you're so thirsty. If John was given a vision into the corporate worship services at Honey Ridge, would he see a small foretaste of heaven? Would he see an eager rehearsal of the scene in heaven? Or would he find people with no real understanding and appreciation of what it means to be the redeemed from the earth. There's no joy, there's no gratitude, there's no worship, and so as a result, there's, there's no volume. And masks have made this worse, hiding behind your mask so that no one can see that you're not singing. But the volume says you're not singing. Can I encourage those of you who love the back three rows of the church as well as those of you who come early so that you can sit as far away in the wings as possible. I'm not looking at anyone in particular. Just try the front rows for a few weeks. You'll never go back. You'll be crowding for the front because in the front, you can hear the voices of the multitude of God's people singing. 
Ask God on a Saturday night to prepare your heart to worship him in spirit and in truth. Wake up early next Sunday morning, just 15 minutes early, and spend that time in the Psalms asking God to warm your heart for worship. Come to church with an expectation to learn and sing the songs of heaven, songs that only you and I will be able to sing in heaven one day because they are the songs of the redeemed. Yes, the Lord may give you a louder voice uh, in heaven than you have here on earth, and I'm sure that our resurrected bodies are going to go through a retuning so that we start to sound like harps. But the heart of the worshiper in heaven is no more redeemed than the heart of a believer here on earth. If your heart does not sing now, if you are not eager to worship God now, if you are not longing to, to gather to worship God better and more fully while you are here on earth, do you really want to get to heaven I just love what a pastor said at a conference that Shane and I attended the other day. He told us that he said to his wife, you better love me now while I'm here on earth because when we get to heaven, we'll only be interested in Jesus. Is that your heart? Is that your heart as you've come into this worship service today? You've only got eyes for Jesus. So we've seen the identity and we've seen the activity of the 144,000. In the final place today, I want us to see the character of the 144,000. We are told three things uh, in verses four and five about the character of these people around the lamb. And it's intimately tied up with their worship of him. We are told that they are spiritually devoted to Jesus. They follow the lamb wherever he goes and they speak his native language. Now, verse four uh, in our Bibles is unfortunately a verse which has been so badly distorted by so many that I almost wish it wasn't in the Bible. But we must not let those who twist the word of God get away with their nonsense. Understood in the context of Revelation, understood in the context of the whole Bible, verse four does not teach that sexual relations in a marriage defile a person. That's nonsense. Bible speaks so clearly of the, the beauty of the sexual relationship and the marriage bed being pure and holy. It also does not teach that women are somehow unclean and that only male virgins get to heaven. This is not a verse about physical relations between a man and a woman on earth. It is spiritually speaking about the people of God as the bride of Christ who are singularly devoted to Jesus. We'll see this more clearly next time when we are introduced to the great prostitute called Babylon in verse eight, who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. This is using Old Testament language of spiritual adultery, of those who claim to be God's people, claim to be married to God, but who hoard after the idols of the pagan nations who lusted after the pleasures of the world, who, as we will see in chapter 17, drank deeply of all the earth's abominations. 
Now, in contrast to that group, we are told that the church of Jesus Christ, the 144,000, are made up of those who are pure for Jesus, who are totally devoted to Jesus, who've kept themselves pure for what? For the marriage feast of the Lamb, which comes in chapter 19. But secondly, we are told that the character of the 144,000 is that they follow the lamb wherever he goes, verse four. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. Yes, we are saved 100% by faith alone in Christ alone. It's all a work of God's grace. But Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will obey me. You see, obedience to Jesus Obedience to Jesus doesn't get us into heaven. Obedience simply identifies us as those who are already on our way to heaven. Remember, this is a picture of the, the saints in heaven. They are characterized here by this devotion to Jesus. And so just like the singing in heaven is a continuation of and a perfection of our singing here on earth, so obedience to Jesus in heaven is a continuation of and a perfection of our obedience to Christ on earth. So how does this aspect of the redeemed fit your life right now? Do you follow Jesus wherever he goes? Do you follow wherever he leads you? Can you say with David in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, his rod and his staff, they protect me. They comfort me. Think about your career path. Young adults, think about your future choice of a spouse. Think about parents, your, your approach to raising your children, your attitude to sport and entertainment, your heart towards those of another race, the way you spend your money, the way you view retiring and getting old, the way you serve the Lord in the church. Can it be said of you and me, we follow the lamb wherever he goes? And then finally, we see that in contrast to the beast last week, the second beast who, who looked like a lamb but spoke like a dragon, here we see that the character of the redeemed are those who speak the true lamb's native language. We speak the truth. Just notice the contrast. Romans 1, we are told about those who worship the beast, those who have the mark of the beast on them. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Contrast that with what Jesus says to those who have the Spirit in their lives. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so yes, this certainly is a reference here to speaking the truth in our everyday lives. It's, it's nothing less than that. But in the context of Revelation, it's so much more. As we contrast those who are marked by the beast, full of lies and deception, the 144,000 on Zion are those who speak the truth about God. Remember the two witnesses, the two lampstands, uh, the two um, olive trees? We are meant to be his witnesses. We are meant to speak the truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel and to do so faithfully. 
And so as we close this morning, how would you describe yourself as a Christian? Are you someone who is spiritually devoted to Jesus Christ? So much so that you follow him every day wherever he leads you. And then in all your dealings in life, you faithfully represent Jesus and his truth in every situation. The final sentence in verse five summarizes the 144,000. The Greek simply says, they are blameless. I think the ESV is not helpful here because it says, for they are blameless. And so it kind of links being blameless to those who speak the truth. Uh, but I think the NIV and the Christian Standard Bible are more clear here. They simply echo the Greek. It's a, it's a sentence on its own at the end of this section. Those 144,000 who stand on Mount Zion with Jesus they are blameless. The word literally means without blemish. Now, no matter how good our worship singing is on earth, no matter how devoted we are to Christ, no matter how much we try to obey Jesus and speak the truth, can any one of us say that we are blameless? Well, let me answer that in Afrikaans. Ja, near. Yes. Yes, we are justified. Yes, we are declared righteous because we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Blameless. But no, we are not yet perfect. We are a work in progress. We still have to put to death the deeds of the flesh and put on the works of righteousness. But when we get to heaven one day, there will be no more yarnir. We will be blameless. Blameless. Did you know that this process of sanctification is the lifelong commitment of Jesus to his church? Jesus is unwaveringly committed to making you and me perfect. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy, and here's the same word, and without blemish, blameless. That is Jesus' commitment to the church is to present us blameless. And so with that guarantee of what lies ahead, our daily life as a Christian surely should then be one of striving for glory, living every day in preparation for glory. Yes, we cannot yet sing with the volume of thunder and the melody of a harp, but we are getting there Sunday by Sunday. We still have temptations which linger and idols which lead us astray, but our loving devotion to Jesus is unmistakable and it's growing day by day. We still think we know better at times, especially young people, but hour by hour, we are learning that the Lamb knows best. And so we follow Him wherever He goes. We hate the fact that our hearts sometimes lead us astray by the deception of the world and and our testimony to the truth is at best faltering. But minute by minute, we are learning to put a guard before our mouths and to only speak the truth in love. So yes, we are still a work in progress. But the lamb who stands on Mount Zion has committed to complete the work that he began in us. 
And in the end, we will be blameless. Because in the end, the Lamb wins. And as we stand with Him, with His name and His Father's name written across our foreheads, the Lamb gets all the glory. I hope that makes you want to sing. But let's pray first and then we'll sing. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truths contained in your word. Particularly this portion of scripture, which just gives us this hope of glory and an understanding of what it means that the Lamb wins that we will spend all eternity in the presence of Jesus and in the presence of our heavenly Father, worshiping you with the song of the redeemed for all eternity. Lord, forgive us for taking such a low view of the church, your people here on earth. Forgive us for taking such a low view of this opportunity that we have to, to gather each week to worship you in spirit and in truth. Forgive us for taking our witness of you and our character as Christians here on earth so lightly as we play games with sin and with the idols of this world, as we play loose and fast with the truth. Oh Lord God, forgive us, we pray. Continue to draw us to a clearer vision of the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. As we grasp the holiness of Jesus, won't you give us an ever-increasing hatred for our sin and a desire to strive, to strive by God's grace, your Spirit working within us towards the hope of glory which awaits us. Help us, we pray, to be those who truly worship you in spirit and in truth, not only on Sundays, but as we go out with all of our lives into the rest of this week, for we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.